once you've got a field mapped, you're just hanging out. Mm -hmm. You're there to turn the steering wheel when it beeps at you Mm -hmm. and to make sure nothing catches fire. Mm -hmm. It's like driving a Tesla. Welcome. You are listening to Farm to Tabor. Today we're talking with the pseudonymous Dave, former <laughs> tractor repair guy, combine repair guy, and current IT guy. He's going to talk to us about right to repair, some of the technology, and especially the business models behind why combines are like that, why right to repair is an issue in agriculture, how much of an issue it really is in agriculture. Some of the information may surprise you. Say hi, everyone, Dave. Hi, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, Dave. Great, great to be here. Yeah, great it's good to, to have you. Great to be talking again. You know, it's been a minute. <laughs> yeah. And we'll, we'll get into the right to repair stuff. That is like the nameplate on this podcast. But I think in order for that stuff to make sense, like people need to know enough about the tractor market to be like, oh, that's why they do it. These are the alternatives. My impression is like, I think most people who don't farm intuitively believe that farmers like share tractors are like, okay, he's shaking his head. You get together with a neighbor and you're like, hey, these are expensive. Let's all go in on one together. That sounds yeah. like it would be intuitive, so people must be doing it. In my experience, they do not. So we should talk about that. Uh, so like that kind of thing, you're more often going to find people that will hire out their farming. They will hire out a tractor because, you know, you'll have one big farmer buy, you know, a 4,000 series tractor or whatever it is, mm-hmm. or I guess it's a 6,000 series tractor. And they're like, okay. This thing costs, you know, a half a million dollars. Mm-hmm. We need to make more money off of it. Well, Farmer Brown down the road, can't, you know, he's got 200 acres. He's not going to buy a half million dollar tractor to farm his 200 acres. Hire one of the big farmers to come and do his farming for him. Well, and then it's only a hop, skip and a jump to like, well, he's already doing all your field work. So you might as well just rent to him. And yeah. And then everybody goes, ah, these big farms are eating everything up. And I'm like, really? Because it looks to me like a bunch of small farms are extracting rent from the big ones that are actually doing things. (laughs) Yeah. There's so many ways to look at this situation. And the rent thing is also like, sometimes they're not so great at balancing out what rent costs should be. So it's like, oh, I'm leasing it out at, you know, $10 an acre, but my neighbor is leasing his out at. $40 an acre. But, you know, since it's the Midwest, you cannot talk about money. Right. Right. Yeah. People kind of do this whole thing about like, oh, farmers don't talk about money because, you know, modesty and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, that's not why. That's not why. It's the same reason why your employers don't want you talking about money. It's because uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) they want to keep that gravy train going of low costs and high profits. Right. Yeah, if we can just create this culture of like, well, it's indiscreet, it's indelicate to talk about money, and you're not a team player if you do it, and it, it's just bad, it's just bad, Don't, it, it's just bad, stop. <laughs> <laughs> I find the reason that it's so common for people outside of agriculture to assume that, like, of course, farmers must share equipment, or like, you know, even if there's a formal, like, we each have a 25% share of this tractor, right, arrangement, people yeah. tend to assume that must be the case, I think, because we all grew up on Little House of the Prairie. Where it kind of talks about like, oh, well, there were threshing rings and people did corn husking bees and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I suspect that was a smaller part of the American farm story than we think it was, for one thing. And then second, like the the ownership picture on those is a little bit different. I think threshing yeah. rings actually, like somebody owned the threshing machine and then everybody like 
took a turn renting it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's what it was. And a lot of times it would be renting, renting it for, uh, you know, X amount of however much you used mm-hmm. or however much you made. Mm-hmm. It's like if you threshed, you know, 600 bushel, the person who owned the machine would get 10% or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of a uh, plowshare situation, but not really. Yeah. It's like a sharecropping on a machine kind of thing. Yeah. Sharecropping. Yeah. Well, it, it's wild too, because I, I feel like, again, if you get your information about agriculture from Little House on the Prairie, and this isn't a dig on people who read Little House on the Prairie. This is a dig on the people who wrote Little House on the Prairie. Uh, <laughs> they didn't do a whole lot of research. Yeah. It's it's very much okay. like, you know, it, it was two authors. It was a mother-daughter team. You know, Lori yeah. Wilder was a child and didn't know what finances were. Yeah. And... Uh, and her daughter was like, straight up, I want to write some libertarian propaganda. Hey, mom, let's pick up some stories from your childhood that you only half remember and spin them into what I need them to be. Um, so it's in this kind of like mythologized universe where this big, expensive harvest rig or this threshing rig just exists. And the way it's presented is like from a child's viewpoint. We don't talk about how much it costs because, I mean, the adults probably didn't do it very much either. Um, yeah. But they would have known because they, you know, like paid the money. There's so a reason of- why they were renting it and didn't have their own. Right. Yeah. So we're presented with this child's eye view of agriculture where like giant equipment just shows up and it doesn't cost money. And if that's how you've been trained to see agriculture by someone who wrote libertarian propaganda for a living, if that's your just your point of entry into this industry, then you look at the modern situation where all this equipment costs a lot of money. I don't think anybody ever stops and says, wow, farm equipment used to be free, but it just used to like arrive. And then like everybody used it. And we don't talk about the money part. I'm like, it always costs money. They just didn't talk about it. Well, I will say that the price of equipment has probably outpaced the value. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Like, you know, a John Deere tractor costs half a million dollars. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. There are cheaper alternatives, but that's the one that everyone's going to go to. Yeah. I feel like John Deere is a great place to start with that. So you mentioned, you know, it's kind of, uh, it's the one that people go for. And we've also talked about how like, well, it's not necessarily because it works better than the other equipment. So I would love to explore yeah. what is the mystique of John Deere. So a lot of the mystique around John Deere, well, any of the big brands, John Deere, Case IH, used to be Cat Challenger. Now it's just Challenger. Uh, it is the brand recognition, right? It's like, oh, you can see that green combine from a mile away, literally. So people are going to know, oh, he spent a lot of money on that. So are you like, suggesting oh, it's conspicuous consumption? It is. Absolutely. Farmers Let's don't do that. <laughs> also, there's like tax deductions and all that because it's like, oh, I'm I'm on the new equipment rotation. And some of that does come back to how John Deere has set up their business model. Mm-hmm. They don't like selling new equipment to farmers directly. They like selling new equipment to custom harvesters. Yeah, we should talk and about we'll, that. Yeah, we'll get into the, the custom harvester thing. But so they, they sell new equipment to custom harvesters and custom applicators. That way, you know, it gets X amount of use and it gets regular service because it's brand new. And then it comes back in and then they resell that equipment to farmers and the custom harvesters, custom applicators get, you know, a discount on their next machine because they've made their, you know, two payments for the year. It's a trade-in, yeah. Yeah, it's a trade-in and it's on a regular basis. So I kind of want to reiterate that a little bit, again, for folks who aren't in agriculture, because a lot of moving pieces there. So when we say custom harvest, we kind of alluded to that a little bit. That is when, you know, you buy a tractor and then use it for your own place, but you also, it's like Uber for tractors. You also do it for hire for other people. Um, Yeah, that would be custom farming, but yeah. 
Yeah. Custom harvesting is the same concept, but there's just massive crews that come down out of, you know, Canada and come all the way down to South Texas. And then they go all the way back up, just right. working their way back up with the harvest. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's, I think we've all heard of migrant farm labor, but there's tractor crews that do that too. It's like yeah. fleets of tractors that are like on the road. It's just kind of like following the wave of harvest. Um, and I think it was you who told me this, you know, they'll start every season with a new set of equipment and kind of like write it over the season. The, you know, well, they try to. So in an ideal world, what happens is we have these crews of custom harvest machines. So like, say you're a company and you're like, I'm just going to buy a fleet of combines and get some H2A guys to drive them. And I'm going to send them out on the road. You know, farmers are going to call us and come say, do my place. We're going to ride these machines as hard as they can go. As, yeah. I don't want to say 24-7 because humans still have to sleep sometimes, but like 18, you know, 7. Yeah, a lot of hours. Mm -hmm. the, th the thing you need to worry about with harvesting specifically is you're, you're always going to be fighting the dew point because as the humidity level rises, it's going to be harder and harder to cut. It's so, just like cutting grass, you know, like if it's wet, yeah. it doesn't go well. Yeah. Yeah. But since grains have to be so dry already to cut, you're, you're really fighting that moisture all the time. So in an ideal world, you're doing that. You're moving through the countryside, you know, like going north or going south, depending on when the season is. And whatever county you're in, there's a John Deere dealership nearby to take the thing in for its regular servicing. Yep. Um, so you're just kind of doing that. And then when you get to the end of your season, ideally, you know, if there's enough combines, then you trade that sucker in and, um, you know, either immediately or like the next season, you get a, a fresh combine with a discount because you did a trade in. Yeah. So as a custom harvester, like that's one business model. And they usually get the first crack at tractors. Uh, the John Deere dealerships will take them in at the end of that custom harvest term, recondition them, and then yeah. sell used tractors to farmers who like more like stay put. And so if you're a farmer buying John Deere, odds are it's going to be a reconditioned used one that's already been through a fleet. Yep. And it's not necessarily a bad deal because it, anytime it comes in like that at the end of the season, it will go through a warranty process. Like if you blowed up an engine or you're, you know, shooting oil out the back. You can get that warranty. They also offer like an extended warranty program. I believe it's called PowerGuard still. And that, again, is like you can extend your warranty out another two, three years, I think. They're still very expensive. So, I mean, it's not a bad deal. There's just a certain type of farmer that always has new John Deere equipment in their barn. I went to University of Florida. You know, they have their, their land grant university and their ag school had to deal with John Deere. So it was just John Deere everywhere. And... um <laughs> going on a trip up to the Midwest and they were like, it was a field trip, right? They're like, okay, kids, you're going to see how real agriculture works because it's a Southern school. And uh, I had already worked in corn in the Midwest. So I was just like, yep, here we go. And uh, <laughs> and we hit this one uh, farm and it's got like this $2 million barn full of John Deere, right? you know. So a tractor, like, combine, and an applicator. Combine and tractors, a high boy, all this stuff. And a uh, high boy is a fancy sprayer on stilts so you can go over tall corn. Well, see, now I've never seen anything shorter than that. Mm, yeah. I mean, like, yeah, like a I'm... sprayer rig, you know, on stilts, right? Or just yeah. Well, you can tell right? I was like from corn country because it's like, I've never seen a short sprayer before. Right. You're like, is that a low rider? What is that? <laughs> yeah. What is it? Has it got the hydraulics? <laughs> Those hydraulics um, are kind of neat. <laughs> right but yeah so this guy has like this barn full of like millions of dollars worth of john deere equipment it all looks pretty new and he's like yeah we farm like three thousand acres worth of corn and can't make ends meet and the only reason we can keep operating is my daddy owns a silo and i'm just like he owns a grain elevator and i'm like hmm? so that's a really expensive hobby that you got there <laughs> did you really need that 4090 yeah i was just like there's a lot of new john deers in here for a guy who can't make ends meet uh, i think i've had your problem bro and that comes back to, do you really need a John Deere? 
would you be better off with a versatile or a Case IH or I guess a Case IH Ford New Hall, whatever. It, yeah, they're whatever you're calling it these days. Yeah. Uh, do you do you even need a tractor that big? Would a large Kubota suit you better? Thank you.